The Da Da Di Da Da Code. Chapter 28. Johnny Hooker raised his head from the rubble. He felt it himself, although not in the biblical sense, and declared himself sound enough in mind and limb and still upon the plane of living, although somewhat bruised and battered all about. Coughing dust as one does in an aftermath, he rose, a patting at his person and spitting somewhat too. Are we the last survivors? O'Fagan's head appeared above the bar counter. Was that the Holocaust? Oh, blessed be. It's a paddy wagon, said Johnny, pushing laths and plaster away from the paddy wagon's rear door. Somewhat embedded in the gents. Not the nuclear Holocaust, then? O'Fagan made the sign of the cross, the sign of the four, the sign of the times, and the times they are a changin all over his chest and upper body regions generally. And there was me, thinking that you and I would have to mate to repopulate the earth and stop it from being taken over by monkeys. Been there, done that. What is that funky noise? The funky noise in question came from the rear of the paddy wagon. It was a funky groaning, moaning noise, a collection of noises, a group, a covey, a shoal, a bevy, a... What is that gallimaufry of noises? O'Fagan asked. Policemen, I think. Johnny struggled with more laths and plaster, struggled with the wagon's rear door. There was a struggle, and a yank, and an opening, and a rush. And suddenly, Johnny was engulfed by policemen. A blue surge horde poured out and about him. Johnny went down in the blur. Johnny mate. Hands were laid upon him, and Johnny was raised aloft. Paul? Johnny could see Paul's helmetless head, his fine head of hair all caught in a shaft of sunlight, which now flowed into the public bar through a large hole in the ceiling. Johnny, mate, I'm sorry, I could have killed you. You could have killed me? I grabbed him around the throat, an act of bravery. There'll be no doubt a medal in it for me. I hope it has a black ribbon. I, what are you talking about? Johnny fanned away Paul's hands, which were patting and poking at him. Groaning constables were rising to their feet. Others were now peering in through the big hole in the front wall. Those others had mighty weaponry. Johnny Hooker put his hands up. I surrender, he said. I'll come quietly. Don't shoot, G-men. Clap the cuffs on me. Copper, it's a fair cop. Have you lost all reason? Man in a black suit, said Paul, patting all over himself. Black sunglasses, Gunnersbury Park, shootout. Not human. Blimey. Johnny Hooker shook his head. The driver in the cab? Driver, said Paul. Man or monster or something. Really? Johnny Hooker looked along the paddy wagon. It was pretty firmly embedded into the wall. There didn't look to be a lot of chance of reaching the cab. Little hatchway, said Paul, between the cab and the rear. Let's go and have a look, eh? You're being terribly brave, said Johnny, considering that you didn't have the bottle to throw in your lot with me. Well, that's only because you're such a loser. No offense meant. Done taken, I assure you. Friendship is a wonderful thing, said O'Fagan. Red and white flock paper, I think. And one of those super jukebox jobbies that works through the interweb and has a million tracks on it. Johnny looked at Paul, and Paul looked at Johnny. Is it worth asking him? Paul asked Johnny. Johnny shook his head. I'll tell you anyway, said O'Fagan. Notice how unnaturally calm I am, even though my livelihood is in ruination? Well, that's because it's a police paddy wagon and I am a Freemason. And I expect a very large cash payout for all of this damage. And it will be worth another installment in the Sunday tabloids, and probably further headlines in tomorrow's gutter press, and quite, said Johnny. And to Paul, little hatch, go on then. And Paul climbed into the rear of the paddy wagon. 
Want to have a look, too? he asked. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Johnny climbed in after Paul, and the two made their way forward. With a degree of care. A certain caution. A certain anticipatory caution. They reached the little hatchway, and Johnny whispered, Go on, then. Paul hesitated. He might well still be armed and dangerous, he said. My feelings entirely. Which was why I marveled at your bravery. Or should I say, bravado. I'm brave enough, said Paul, and he took a small peep, then a big peep, and a bigger peep still. And then he ducked back his head and went, Not again. Not again? asked Johnny, and then he peeped. But again, it certainly was. The driver sat there, bolt upright in the driving seat, both hands upon the wheel. But this was not a man in a black suit, white shirt, and black tie. This was a man in a dusty 18th century frocked coat with quilted sleeves and lacy frillings. Golden rings adorned his slender fingers. And as to the again, this was also a man who lacked for a head. Clear a path there. Step aside. Inspector Westlake entered the punctured premises. Pistol held high and big striding gait, he shuffled constables to the right and left of him and called into the rear of the paddy wagon. Is he alive? he called. No, sir, replied Constable Paul. His head's all gone, just like Mr. Crawford and the rest. Another? Damn and blast! Inspector Westlake entered the paddy wagon. I want this area sealed off, he told Constable Paul. And I want scientific support here at the hurry-up. And you, he pointed the business end of his pistol at Johnny. I want you out of here. Yes, sir, said Johnny. Johnny Hooker whispered certain words to Constable Paul. Constable Paul made a doubtful face. Johnny whispered further words, and Constable Paul said, All right. I told you to get out of here, Inspector Westlake said. Johnny grinned and saluted. Yes, sir, sir, he said. Yes, your ladyship, said Joan. She had re-established herself behind what was left of the reception desk, and she had answered the ringing telephone. It was an internal call from Countess Vanda. Excuse me, your ladyship, for just a moment. Joan plucked something that did not even remotely resemble a dinosaur from her left ear hole and returned the telephone receiver to it. What was all that ungodly racket? asked Countess Vanda. We had a bit of an incident, your ladyship. A terrorist. There was a lot of shooting. I think I might have... Joan did some bitings of the lower lip. Most of the dust had settled now, and the ruination was fearsome. There has been some, she said, and then went, Wah! Wah? asked Countess Vanda. Joan put her hand over the telephone receiver. Terrorists, she said. Joan shushed him. Yes, she said to Countess Vanda. I'll call the conservators on the phone. I'm sure they'll be able to, uh, patch things up. Goodbye and she replaced the receiver. Terrorist? said Ranger Connor. Oh, no. And I missed it? You wouldn't have liked it, said Joan, primping at her hair. Not very nice at all, it wasn't. He ran across the ceiling. The ceiling? Men in a black suit. A black suit? Terrorist, she said. Terrorist? And a white shirt. White shirt? Please don't keep repeating what I say. What I say? Joan smacked Ranger Connor. Thank you, said the Ranger. But you're saying that the man in the black suit chap with the posh voice, Joan nodded, that he was a terrorist? Probably still is. But he asked me to find... To find? Don't you start. And what did he ask you to find? A laptop, amongst the effects of the late James Crawford, but it wasn't in the boxes. Well, all's well that ends well, eh? Are you doing anything at lunchtime? Ranger Connor asked. Eating my lunch? Joan replied. I was wondering. 
Perhaps if you'd care to join me for a sandwich in the rangers' hut. Ah, said Joan. About the rangers' hut. About the rangers' hut? Joan smacked him again. Has something happened to the rangers' hut? It got sort of blown up, said Joan. Sort of blown up? Joan withheld her smacking hand. It must come as a bit of a shock, she said. I'm sorry. You're sorry? said Ranger Connor, going all pale. That new Ranger Chickatine. I left him in the hut. Something tumbled from it and fell to the ground. Constable Paul demanded some order. Back, cried he. I'm arresting this lady in a straw hat for striking a police officer. You'll never make it stick, rat boy, cried the lady. Rat boy, said Paul, and the lady smacked him again. Ranger Chickatine, elastoplast speckled, dust spattered also, had left the devastated bar of the middleman, but had not, as such, left altogether. He hovered about amongst the growing crowd that was now being held back behind the hastily strung lengths of do-not-cross tape. "'Stand back, please, sir,' Constable Paul advised him. "'Don't be a twat,' said Johnny. "'Show a little respect for that constable,' said a lady in a straw hat. "'He's only doing his job, and it can't be any fun looking like that.' "'Like that?' said Constable Paul. The lady in the straw hat smacked him. Lads from scientific support in their nice white environmental suits were milling all around and about. Two were assembling a coconut shy. Two more were manhandling a body on a stretcher through the yawning maw that had so recently been the front wall of the middleman. Johnny Hooker did cranings of the neck. The stretcher passed him near at hand, and as it did so, the crowd made a bit of a surge forward. There was some jostling involved, and some muffled and censored swear words issued from within the face helmets of the men in white. Johnny bumped up against the stretcher. Johnny stooped swiftly and picked up the something that had tumbled from the stretcher. It was a key. A brass key. Johnny turned it over on his palm and gave it a furative once-over. It was an antique key for sure. Upon it were engraved certain words and a date. Johnny read those words and he read that date and Johnny Hooker smiled. The words engraved upon the key were the Acme Heirloom Company. The date was 1790. Chapter 29 Whenever I hear the words culture club, I reach for my pistol, said O'Fagan to Johnny. It was a little afternoon now, and some semblance of normality had returned to the middleman. Not a great deal, but some. The paddy wagon had been dragged from the building's innards, winched onto a low loader and driven away. Steel acros had been positioned all around and about to support the falling ceilings and walls. The rubble had been swept away, along with the broken furniture and art-for-art's-sake artery. Plastic sheets were now taped over the great big hole. Johnny Hooker had a brass key in his pocket. A brass key that really meant something. Exactly what that something was, Johnny was not precisely sure. But it was a reality. A confirmation that he was on the right track, that the heirloom had really existed, for now he drank ale with O'Fagan. And don't get me started on Spandu Ballet, said O'Fagan. Is there an 80s night in the offing? Johnny asked. He sat on one of the two remaining bar stools before what was left of the bar counter. O'Fagan had his arm in a sling. Someone had mentioned compensation for injuries received to him. He also sported an eye patch. The show must go on, said O'Fagan. Apparently, at the first hint of any kind of disaster, these 1980s bands that you'd hoped were long forgotten turn up to do a benefit night. That's very sad, said Johnny. Sad but true, said O'Fagan, and I haven't heard anything from Metallica. 
I'd be happy to have them. Is the show going on tonight, then? Johnny asked. Absolutely. We'll be having that dry rot. A gay band. Gay band? said Johnny. O'Fagan slapped him. Johnny punched O'Fagan. I don't think it's supposed to work like that, said O'Fagan, clicking his jawbone back into place. Do you have something against gay bands? Dry rot is not a gay band. It's a heavy rock band. Heavy rock or mincing pansy, it's all the same when you come right down to it. Oh yeah, you're probably right, said O'Fagan. I must have misread the instructions on the box. I think I have a concussion. I wonder how much I can claim for that. So dry rot will still be playing tonight? Damned right, said O'Fagan. As I told that Duran Duran, go back to Russia, you simpering fairy, I told him. We'll have none of your commie music here. Quite so, said Johnny. Quite unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. The words came out of the police pathologist's mouth and entered Inspector Westlake's ears. Go on, said the inspector. Well, said the police pathologist, observe this. They were in the county morgue, because every English county has a county morgue. And it was one of your proper morgues, too, with the big aluminum filing cabinet jobbies for putting the stiffs in, and the table with the blood goalies in it for carving up the stiffs on, and all the equipment and paraphernalia that anyone could hope to find in a place where stiffs are carved and stored away. No, said the pathologist, you are not Inspector Westlake. Inspector Westlake is a young chap who wears a black suit, white shirt, black tie, black shoes, and sunglasses. The police pathologist whose given name was Dickie, but whose nickname was the Gallbladder Sandwich Man, drew back the sheet that covered the headless corpse and drew Inspector Westlake's attention to the gory neck hole, just like the others. I have not as yet received the reports on the others, said the inspector pointedly. Perhaps they got lost in the post. No need to adopt that tone, old chap. You haven't received the reports because I was told to hand them over directly to Inspector Westlake. I am Inspector Westlake said Inspector Westlake. Who are you, anyway? I am Inspector Westlake, roared Inspector Westlake, producing the warrant card and thrusting it in the pathologist's face. That man there, on the slab, that is the terrorist who apparently has been impersonating me. I think not, said the pathologist. I think so, said the inspector. He was killed during a high-speed chase. A young officer will be receiving a commendation over it. Not the man, said the pathologist. Can't be. And why can't it not be? Nicely put, said the pathologist. I'd have to smack you if you'd repeated me. Why? asked Inspector Westlake. Who knows, said the pathologist. These things come into fashion. They're a sort of running gag. They're here and then they're gone. Who can say? About the body? said Inspector Westlake. Now that is quite another matter. That is not a here today and gone tomorrow sort of body. It's more a here yesterday but shouldn't be here today kind of affair. How so? This body, said the pathologist, is not the body of a man who died today. It certainly is, said Inspector Westlake. I do hate to keep contradicting you, said the pathologist. Well, as a matter of fact, I don't, but this man did not die today. By the state of this body, by the mummification process, the what? This body is mummified. This body is a museum piece. The clothes are authentic, the jewelry, the shoes. This is the body of a Regency dandy. This body is more than two hundred years old. Two hundred years old, said Mr. Henry Hunter, master conservator, with no nickname. The pillars date from around 1790, as does much of the interior work. Joan smiled up at Henry Hunter. He had arrived post-haste in his bright blue van with his bright young assistant, Sparky. Sparky had taken a shine to Joan. 
Joan, to Henry Hunter. Tragic business, said Henry. Shootout, you say? Anyone injured? Only the portrait of Sir Henry. That old rogue. Not the first time someone took a pot shot at him. I suppose you know all about the big house, said Joan, adjusting her bosoms onto the temporary top of the shored-up reception desk. Father and son for many generations, said Henry, averting his gaze from the bosoms. A long and strange history this place has. Rogues and rascals and weirdos. If these old walls could only speak, eh? Sexual intrigue? Joan asked. I'm sure you've read all the guidebooks. Scandal? asked Joan. Henry had his special wooden workcase jobby. He shifted certain reproduction prehistoric animal facsimiles aside and eased it onto the temporary countertop. Flipping the catches, he opened the lid. We'd best get to work, he said. You can talk as you work, said Joan. I know. I do it all the time. Henry took out pots of gunk and tubes of glue and balls of string and a cardboard box containing a number of professional-looking brushes of the type used by conservators when they do delicate restoration work. Badger pelt swabbers and fox fur floggers. About the scandals? said Joan. Henry gave his nose a tap with the hamster hair handicrafter and nearly put his eye out. Discretion, he said. Oh, go on. Well... <clears throat> no. Oh, go on. Well, Henry took to directing Sparky. Sparky grudgingly removed his gauge from Joan's breasts and steered it towards the job in hand. This is going to take months, he said. Years, said Henry. Hours, said Joan. Hours, said Henry. Joan didn't smack him. Hours, said Henry once more. Twenty-four hours, said Joan. I have just received a call from Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, said Sparky, and Joan smacked him. Buckingham Palace, said Joan once more. Apparently there's to be a special conference of bigwigs held here on Sunday. What with all this kerfuffle, I thought they'd move it somewhere else, but apparently not. Buckingham Palace were appraised of the situation, but apparently they still want the meeting to go ahead here. So you have to have the place all spruced up and well again within twenty-four hours. Sparky almost said, twenty-four hours? Almost. Would you like me to make you both a cup of tea? Joan asked. British workmen thrive on tea. Tea and fellatio, or so I've heard. Madam, said Henry. Madam, excuse me, please. You are excused, said Joan. Third on the left down the hall. No, that is not what I mean. Are you telling me that some kind of international conference is to be held here on Sunday? Joan nodded prettily and that Her Majesty the Queen, God bless her, will be attending? Joan winked. I think so, yes. Oh, no, said Henry. Oh, no, no. No, said Joan. No, said Henry. Not here. That must not be. Are you all right, Spunky? Sparky asked. No, I am not, and don't call me Spunky. I do not have a nickname. Spunky, said Joan. No, went Henry Hunter once more. Her Majesty must not come here. She came once before, said Joan. During the Millennium celebrations, we had a brand new toilet installed just for her, just on the off chance that she does go to the toilet like the rest of us. And did she? Sparky asked. Joan put her finger to her lips. I know she came here before, said Henry. I helped to install that toilet. A reproduction Thomas Crapper. Cost an arm and a leg, but it was worth it. But months of planning went into that visit. Security men were here for months, one on permanent 24-hour watch inside the toilet itself. When was this latest visit planned? Just today, I think. No, no, no. Henry Hunter grew quite red in the face. 
It's far too dangerous. I advised against it last time, and I advise against it now. Why wasn't I informed? Perhaps because the Countess knew you'd advise against it. The Countess? said Henry. The new curator. New curator? What happened to Stan? Vanished, said Joan. Apparently ran away or something. No. Henry fairly shrieked this no. Her Majesty must not come here again, shrieked Henry. If she does, she will surely die. Surely die? said Joan, and Henry smacked her. Chapter 30 Henry Hunter knowed some more, so Joan gave him a smack. Thank you, said Henry, and I'm sorry that I... Well, I don't know what came over me. That's all right, Joan smiled. I quite enjoyed it, really. But why are you getting yourself in such a lather? What makes you think that the Queen might be in danger if she comes here? I must speak to the new curator. I'll pass the message on. This is important, said Henry. Very important. Oh, all right. Joan made deep-breasted sighings. I'll give her a call, but she won't be pleased. She usually likes to have a little lie-down in her hyperbolic chamber at this time of day. Her what? said Sparky. I can't smack you if you don't do it properly, said Joan. Eh? said Sparky. Please call her now, Henry said. Joan did phonings, and words passed this way and that. Joan replaced the receiver. She says you can go up now, and while you're up there you can shift some of the furniture about. The conference is to be held in her office, Princess Amelia's sitting room. No, 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 said Henry Hunter, and then took to issuing orders to Sparky to mix up some gunk and begin the restoration work by mopping up the grime from what remained of Sir Henry's portrait with a small yellow item that closely resembled SpongeBob SquarePants, because Henry was a professional and he did have a reputation. He stalked up the sweeping staircase along the gallery and did big knockings upon a certain door. Come, came the voice of Countess Vanda. Henry entered the room. And please shut the door. But it's dark. I am sensitive to the light. But, went Harry, but there is a chair just there before you. Yes, that's right, lit by the shaft of sunlight. Henry dropped onto the chair. He had a bit of a sweat on, did Henry, and a bit of a shake going, too. I understand you have an objection that you wish to voice, said Countess Vanda. In the strongest possible terms, said Henry, wiping a bead of perspiration away from the end of his nose. Her Majesty the Queen must not return to this house. It is not safe. It must not happen. Mr. Hunter, said Countess Vanda, in a voice as soft and sweet as a Thelwell pony. Mr. Hunter, we have not as yet been formally introduced. I am aware of your work here at the big house, and that you are of the latest generation of conservators, and that your family has a connection with this park that stretches back several hundred years. Then please listen to me, said Henry. I will, said Countess Vanda. Please state your case, and do so with alacrity, for it is time for me to recharge my batteries, as it were. Madam, said Henry, generations of hunters who have gone before me, working here at the big house— generations who have remained loyal to the house and its owners. Over the course of time they have become privy to many confidences and aware of many scandals, and remained tight-lipped. Most commendable. I know things about this house, said Henry, that would shock you to your very soul. Crimes have been committed here. Grave crimes. Horrid crimes. Crimes that have been covered up, swept under the carpet, and things of that nature, generally. Generally, said Henry. In the 1790s, talks were held here regarding the British position on the French Revolution. Parliamentary talks? Ah, said Henry. No, not parliamentary. 
the owners of Gunnersbury Park have, throughout the centuries of its existence, shared something in common, something unknown to the general population, indeed unknown to those in Parliament. "'Go on,' said Countess Vanda. "'I am telling you this because I fear that if the Queen hosts the talks here, her life may well be in danger. Otherwise, I would not speak of such things.' "'Go on,' said Countess Vanda once more. "'The secret order of the Golden Sprout,' said Henry. "'All who have owned this house through the years have been members of this secret order.' "'This order is unknown to me,' said Countess Vanda. "'It is a secret society.' founded, many believe, by a certain Count Otto Black, of evil memory. The Order has, throughout the ages, conspired to control those who rule this land of ours, through fair means or foul. Mostly foul. At the talks in 1790, continued Henry, was a most remarkable character, an Illuminati by the name of the Count of St. Germain, a musician, artist, traveler, and mystic, a man who claimed that he could improve the quality of diamonds and turn base metal into gold. A charlatan said Countess Vanda. 1790, said the pathologist. Somewhat significant, do you not think? By no means, madam. Although he certainly encouraged those who built legends around him. It was said, for instance, that he had discovered the elixir of life and that he had once walked with Christ. Enough of this now, said Countess Vanda. Please come to the point. The talks were held, said Henry, but something occurred. It is not sufficient to call it a disagreement. Sir Henry Crawford hosted the talks, and Sir Henry Crawford was slain, he and several others, including, I have reason to believe, the Count of St. Germain. Murders and intrigue litter the pages of history, said Countess Vanda. I do not believe that the meeting tomorrow could possibly have any links to something that happened in 1790. In the very manner of this, said the pathologist, this is a case for Mulder and Scully, to be sure. It's a queer one and no mistake, said the inspector but by applying Occam's razor, I think a simple solution should be forthcoming. Oh, do you really? said the pathologist. Indeed, it is a case of substitution. Clearly the mummified body of a man who has been dead for two hundred years did not commandeer and drive away that paddy wagon. This body was clearly substituted by the driver, a being who, I must confess, is possessed of certain abilities suitable for inclusion amongst the X-Files. I confess that I did not examine the body when it was removed from the paddy wagon, so I cannot say when the substitution was made. Substitution? The pathologist blew onto the end of his bone saw, raising a fine cloud of bone dust. Someone did what? Dug this body from some vault? Put it behind the driving wheel in a public house surrounded by policemen. For what reason? A joke, perhaps? Perhaps, said Inspector Westlake. Believe it or not, there is a class of person in this country who derives considerable pleasure in thwarting the forces of the law. Criminals, we call them in the trade. Perhaps you have heard of them? Most amusing. The pathologist buffed the bone saw on his sleeve. But let us, for argument's sake, say that you are correct. Then how would you explain this? He took himself over to the rack of filing cabinet jobbies where the dead were filed in a certain order and yanked out one of the drawers. And who's this? asked Inspector Westlake. Jonathan Hooker, if the tag upon his toe is to be believed. Inspector Westlake said nothing. I believe you attended the crime scene, Inspector. Indeed, I believe you supervised the loading of this particular body into the scientific support vehicle once the garden furniture had been removed from it and directed its transportation here. I did, said Inspector Westlake. And I examined the body, made my report, and gave it to an impostor, said Inspector Westlake. So it appears. However— 
This impostor never entered the morgue. I placed the body in this cabinet, so kindly explain this. With a suitably theatrical flourish, the pathologist whipped aside the sheet that covered the body to expose a mummy, said Inspector Westlake, viewing the withered hand that showed beneath a lacy cuff and the sleeve of a green-frocked coat. Another mummy, said the pathologist, and I mention the significance of the year 1790 only because he had papers in his pocket with that date. Inspector Westlake scratched at his head. I have to confess, said he, that this is all most perplexing. A word I think one might use without fear of being accused of exaggeration. One thing, said the inspector, lifting the weazened spectral hand and letting it plop down with a dull thump. Could it be some disease or contamination or, God spare us, some terrorist chemical weapon that is capable of changing clothes from present day to those of an antique persuasion? Inspector Westlake shook his head. I have to further confess that I have no idea what this means, he said. Have you drawn any conclusions? Do you have any theories? None that I would wish to put upon record for fear of my reputation. But which you might care to vocalize? In private? Off the record? On the level and under the arch? And Inspector Westlake did certain Masonic gesturings with his fingers. In private and off the record. Strictly off the record. The pathologist returned the inspector's gesturings. How it changed in this manner, I do not know. How the clothes were changed, I do not know. What makes you believe it's the same body? The pathologist lifted the dust-dry right hand. We fingerprint every body that comes in here, as soon as it comes in. Standard procedure. We fingerprinted the body you dispatched to us. This mummy here, I played a hunch and fingerprinted it again. Even allowing for the process of mummification, which would make any kind of positive identification difficult, in this case it wasn't. The prints are the same. It's the same body. Bodies everywhere said Henry Hunter in the darkness, lit only by that little slice of light. Here, in this very room. And it doesn't end there. There were further summit meetings held here, and at each, something unaccountable occurred. Deaths again and again. Each of these summit talks had a direct effect upon world events. Each was held here with those involved not knowing what had happened here in the past. The only ones who knew were those who organized these summit talks, who orchestrated the murderings, who covered up the truth. The Secret Order of the Golden Sprout. And you believe that this will happen again? I read the newspapers and watch the news, same as everyone else. I, like you, know what is going on in the Middle East and how it could trigger a global holocaust. If this is a summit meeting of those who truly control the affairs of this world, there's no telling what those who seek to control these controllers intend. We'd like the reception area returned to its former glory as quickly as possible. This Secret Order of the Golden Sprout? The same, said Henry Hunter. It is a fascinating tale, said Countess Vanda. It is also, of course, the king of all conspiracy theories. I confess that I have heard of this secret order. I believe, however, that there is no positive proof that they have ever existed. Oh, they exist, said Henry. I have seen them with my own eyes, meeting here, in this very room. And how did you see them? I would prefer not to say, but I have, and they do exist. They have the tattoo here. Where's that? Here. Henry held his left forearm in the shaft of sunlight. The golden sprout above the triangle. Well, thank you, Mr. Hunter. Your tale is indeed interesting, but I do not have any reason to believe that Her Majesty is in danger. 
We will be honored to have her attend the meeting here, and I have every confidence in Inspector Westlake's ability to handle the security. No, said Henry Hunter. No, no, no. Yes, 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 said Countess Vanda. Your concern is noted. Now, please return to your work. No, said Henry Hunter. No. No? My conscience will not allow it. I will inform Inspector Westlake, and if he does nothing, I will inform the press. Oh, dear, no. The voice of Countess Vanda surprised Henry Hunter, because it did not come from before him now. It came from behind. Softly, and above his left shoulder. The talks must go ahead. Here, she said. And then Henry felt two hands upon his neck, and there was a twist, and there was a sickening crunch, and Henry Hunter toppled sideways into darkness. And for just a moment, just for a flash, the naked left forearm of Countess Vanda was to be glimpsed in the shaft of sunlight, and there was a tattoo upon it, that of a triangle with a golden sprout above it.